Welcome to GLF Live, a podcast from the Global Landscapes Forum. It's been 10 years since world leaders gathered at the COP19 Climate Summit in Warsaw to flesh out the framework to reduce emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, better known as Red Plus. Given that most of the world's forests are located in the global south, the framework is designed to encourage these countries to conserve and restore their forests with funding from rich countries. But today, global forest loss is actually higher than it was a decade ago. In some countries like Brazil, it's risen significantly. So what's gone wrong? And how can we make Red Plus work the way it was supposed to? Let's find out. Hi, everyone, and welcome to GLF Live. My name is Gabrielle Lichten, and I'm the editor of Landscape News for the Global Landscapes Forum. Today, we're here to break down one of the most complex and often controversial global forestry programs to see what it has actually achieved. The name of this program, which many of you might be familiar with, is Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation in Developing Countries, which has been running for more than a decade now, commonly known by its acronym RED+. Its design, in short, sets a framework for richer countries to pay developing countries for keeping their forests intact, as many developing countries, especially in the tropics, hold some of the most carbon-rich, climate-crucial forests that we have. Of course, there have been many triumphs and pitfalls in such a program as Red Plus, and there have been numerous scientific reports put out in recent years examining them. One of the most recent and important of these is one released earlier this month by the International Union of Forest Research Organizations entitled Over a Decade of Red Plus Outcomes and Sociological Impacts. In light of this report's release, we at the Global Landscapes Forum, together with the International Union, have put together this amazing panel of speakers here to share about the report's findings and Red Plus in general from different viewpoints. From academia, we have Bhaskar Vera, head of the Department of Geography and a professor and fellow at the University of Cambridge. From the implementation side of Red Plus, we have Natalia Nascimento, a geographer and researcher currently studying the intersection of policy and land use dynamics in Latin America and the Caribbean. And from decision-making, we have Dirk Nemitz, team lead of the Agriculture, Forestry, and Land Use Unit at the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC. So welcome to our speakers. We're so happy to have you here today. And we're just going to dive right in um, to what this report has to say. So Bhaskar, I'll start with you. In a few words, um, judging by this report and your own learnings over time, what can you tell us that Red Plus has achieved so far and how relevant is this program still? Thank you, Gabrielle, and thank you for the invitation to contribute to this panel. Um, so just to respond, I mean, I think it's really important for us to set context, uh, especially in the light of the recent sixth IPCC report. Um, and it's important to recognize that Red Plus uh, is only a partial solution towards the climate change problem. Um, you know, given the magnitude and, and scale of the main sources of emissions, forests are only one part of the solution. And we shouldn't uh, lead people to believe that we can solve the problem through forest and land use change. Uh, keeping that in mind, uh, we should now look at what the evidence was and what we were able to assess in, in the report. Um, and it is clear that forests and actions under Red Plus have a significant potential of contributing to greenhouse gas emission reductions. Um, 
the difficulty we have is that programs under Red Plus are at a relatively early stage of implementation. And to draw uh, firm conclusions regarding impacts is really difficult, even at this stage. Um, despite these limitations, we have tried to draw on the indirect evidence which is available. So what the report suggests is that this indirect evidence shows that, for example, deforestation is declining more rapidly in Red Plus countries than in eligible countries which have not adopted Red Plus. So you can draw some indirect conclusions about the potential impacts that Red Plus might be having. We also conclude that the integration of Red Plus interventions with national development strategies and plans makes it more likely that lasting changes can be implemented, which will avoid risks of leakage, which will secure things like additionality of actions under Red Plus. And that's really important that we're not simply displacing activity from one area to another. So some of the indirect evidence on the direct carbon outcomes suggests that there is potential and there is evidence that actually there is achievement. But of course, Red Plus also was accompanied by social and environmental safeguards. So what we were also reviewing is what is the evidence that in the delivery of those carbon benefits, there were no adverse impacts on social and environmental concerns. Um, and again, reviewing the evidence is difficult because there is limited direct monitoring of Red Plus impacts on social and environmental outcomes, but we can attribute some information from available studies. There's a lot of case study material which we've, we have drawn on in the report. And here the evidence suggests that the impacts on biodiversity, as well as on livelihoods and other economic and social outcomes are quite uneven and very context dependent. Um, especially because of the limitations around monitoring of these outcomes. But again, where the evidence is strong, what it suggests is that community engagement really matters. The involvement of local stakeholders in decision-making really matters. Explicit attention to rights and tenure issues in the implementation of Red Plus helps to secure the long-lasting success of the program. So I'll stop at that point because it's a long report, and I would recommend that colleagues take the chance to, to, to look at the detail, but just a few high-level high messages from the report. Thank you so much. And my colleague is going to be dropping that report in the chat so people who are listening can immediately take a look uh, at what that report says. But thank you for that overview. And it's great to hear that deforestation has been going down in Red Plus countries. Uh, and interesting about the specific context of biodiversity and livelihoods, which hopefully we'll get to dig into a bit more in this conversation. But I'm going to turn to Dirk now. Um, because Dirk, you're on the decision-making side and the rule-making side of programs such as these. And how has what you've just heard Bhaskar said and some of the findings about Red, Red Plus stacked up against what its designers intended for it to achieve? That's a, it's a very complex question. I mean, um, I think the first time it was clear that there's a problem with tropical deforestation was more in the 1970s. And I remember publications on tropical forest action plans in the 80s. And in 2005, the idea was born in one of the UNFCCC conferences to say, okay, let's connect these. Let's try to incentivize stopping deforestation because of the emissions coming with deforestation. And uh, let, let's start a program that puts incentives that will stop deforestation. Um, I think the, the idea was very good and it was very sincere and there was a lot of political pressure behind it. But uh, from today's point of view, it was also slightly naive in how easy it would be 
It's like, we want to go to the moon. Let's build a rocket, fly and be on the moon. And uh, people realized that just throwing money at deforestation will not stop it, even if you ha if you combine different aspects, if you combine livelihoods, sustainable development goals, at that time they were called differently, but um, same concept, combine biodiversity goals, land degradation goals, and climate goals, and then you should very quickly get there. But you have to see that this is all happening in a landscape that already exists, and, and people people are living there, people are using the forest, people are having their livelihoods depending on that. There is market pressures on commodities that that are needed and that um, lead to deforestation in some areas. And also, I mean, 2005 was a very different time of, from today. There were extreme technical limitations with measuring what is actually the outcome of, of what is happening. Um, what Red Plus has, and it took a long time for countries to agree on what Red Plus should be. And the final agreement, I would say, was in 2013 with the Warsaw Framework on Red Plus. And this was also directly incorporated into the Paris Agreement. So there was clear commitment that parties want this to have uh, be one of the future legs of climate change. And it's very clear also from, from the IPCC report published earlier this year on climate impacts on forests, that this will not be possible if the emissions continue to rise in energy, in industry, in transport, etc., because of the impact the rising climate has on forests. We could just lose forests because of, of that, even if our uh, government was perfect, our governance was perfect um, of the forest itself. So it, it really is just one um, block, and I, I thank Baska for that, for that comment, um, in addressing climate change. But it can be a very important block, and it can be a block, as we've also seen in many studies in the last years, with a lot of co-benefits and a lot of benefits for local communities and also for other um, environmental services. What was really achieved since 2013 then, and also in some countries that started earlier before that, is to build the capacity, build the institutions. And some of this has been made easier by progress that was made in satellite imagery and the possibility to do remote sensing of forests and know a lot better, not perfectly well, but a lot better than 10 years ago, what's going on in the forest having more real-time, more small-scale data and being able to, to observe this um, very quickly. What is then still needed, and I think some countries are much more advanced than others, is to have institutions that can react to that, that can assess where are the drivers of deforestation and that can then um, improve the forest management, can directly address the drivers. And also to, have, to build the capacity and keep it in the country, to have someone who is permanently looking at the issue of forest governance in the context of climate change, um, but not only climate change, and streamline this climate change policy into the forest governance with the data, with the decision-making, and with the land use planning happening in the country at the same time. And there, a lot has been achieved, and I think many countries are on a, on a very good progress, but there has also been... Um, very clear understanding in Red Plus at all times that we're not starting all at the same level. Some countries have 200 years of data from forest inventories and forest research, and some countries don't have it. So some countries are well advanced in, in that progress, and some are behind. And I think it was very important to get all countries on board so that we don't have this effect of leakage, as Basker also mentioned, that we protect forests in one area where the governance is good and the deforestation increases in another one where it's lacking behind. 
And I think there's also good progress in that as we have, I think about 60 tropical forest countries that are actively engaging with the convention on implementing Red Plus and looking into how this can play an important role for the country in implementing the Paris Agreement as well. Thank you, Thank Derek. You. It's great to hear that so many countries are on board and uh, yeah, indeed a lot of overlap with your, with what you have to say, what Bhaskar has told us before around climate change, getting that into forest management, forest policy more and more as the climate continues to change. And also these difficulties around measuring, around monitoring, uh, but hopefully with the advancing of satellite imagery and satellite data um, that can feed into that as well. Uh, Natalia, we're going to move to you now. You've been working and researching on the ground in Brazil, across Latin America and the Caribbean for quite some time now. Uh, how have you seen Red Plus change the landscape of Brazil, the landscapes you've been working in? How have you seen it impact the ground level? Thank you for the question, Gabriel. I think that is a very important question, considering the current situation of deforestation in the Amazon. So first of all, uh, I'd like to say that uh, my expertise in is the human dimension of land use change. So Professor Vera and Professor Nevitz, please feel free to complement my answer with technical information about Head Plus, Head Plus if you feel it's necessary. So regarding your question, Gabriel, uh, I think that is very important to be in mind that Red Plus is a very important instrument to help to curb deforestation. Now, however, it is only a part of the solution. That is, Red Plus alone without a political, economical, and social structure to support it will not work properly. Also, I think that that is important to uh, consider different moments of deforestation in the Amazon when we talk about wet plus. Uh, when wet plus began to be implemented in the Brazilian Amazon, the Brazilian government was investing intensively to combating deforestation in the region through the creation of new protected areas, uh, improve the monitor and inspection of deforestation. Thus, Red Plus emerged as a complement to these actions, as an economic alternative to conserve the forest and help the people that are living in the forest. So, uh, however, uh, for years uh, of all deforestation that happened in the Amazon, only 8% occurred in the protected areas, including those that are engaged in Red Plus projects. So since uh, 2013, annual deforestation rates in the Amazon uh, have become unstable. And since uh, 2019, we have surpassed the 10,000 square kilometers mark of deforestation. So we are living in a bad moment of deforestation in the Amazon. So in these three last years, the percentage of deforestation in protected areas has gradually increased. Today we have 12, around 12% 12 of all deforestation in the Brazilian Amazon happens in protected areas, especially those that are in agricultural frontiers areas and includes some uh, they are included in Red Plus projects. So uh, it's a reflection of the, the 
bad moment for deforestation, influence the Red Plus projects as well. So in the stakeholders consultation uh, that I carried out for this report in the Brazilian Amazon, although this bad moment, this bad scenario, what I could see is that there is an effort for subnational governments to, from the Amazon to strengthen Red Plus initiatives. I have also seen a huge, huge effort from the local communities on the ground of these projects, working daily to conserve the forest while facing uh, severe threats such as invasion of the lands, uh, illegal exploitation of natural resources uh, through the illegal mining, illegal logging, and criminal wildfires. So uh, in brief, uh, I think that Red Plus is a very good uh, instrument to help to curb deforestation in Brazilian Amazon that over time contributed a lot for the forest conservation in many regions of the Brazilian Amazon. However, this mechanism, like all the mechanisms today, also needs a urgent and strong uh, commitment from the government, uh, political structure to support this mechanism to come deforestation and allow that bad plus in others can have a strong impact on deforestation. Thank you. Thank you for giving us a bit of a context regionalized view of what's happening with this program as well. And that's really important to see it that way. And I want to ask you a follow-up question branching off of that, which was also a finding of the report, which is that it, Red Plus is more successful when its implication becomes more localized and context specific, which Bascar touched on at the beginning and what you're kind of touching on now, describing some of these communities that are environmental defenders facing threats and whatnot. Uh, so could you tell us a bit about what that might look like, what this finding of that it needs to become more localized and context specific, how would that look on the ground in different communities? So uh, I think that the implementation of Red Plus initiatives following regional particularities is of paramount importance because tropical regions have a great diversity of vegetations, histories, and drives of land use change. In Brazil, we have this high diversity of histories, drives of land use change as well. So uh, similarly, governments live different uh, political, economic, social, cultural contexts and could have different technical capacities to monitor and manage their forests. So these aspects can be decisive in the way of governments deal with deforestation and forest degradation and consequently how they approach headplays. Uh, today, uh, national and subnational governments have some flexibility to adopt different approaches to red place. For example, <clears throat> whether they will focus on the carbon stock conservation or in the sustainable forest management and forest carbon stock enhancement, on 
how methodology will be adopted to uh, in different data to, to define the forced reference emission levels and how the that is the gross emission of uh, deforestation, emissions from deforestation for degradation. So uh, logically, this should follow some criteria predetermined by a framework that imposes some requirements for calculation, reported this metrics, verification, the monitoring of forestry, and how these calculations are related to the national GHG inventories uh, submitted to UNEFCCC. Uh, in the chapter two of the report, with which Professor Vira contributed, uh, bring three case studies from Brazil, Ghana, and Indonesia that clearly point out how these countries determine different Red Plus strategies following different uh, trajectories. <clears throat> To, uh, because the national and subnational political, economic, and social context. So how these different scenarios contributed or not to the advancement of Red Plus and to curb deforestation in these countries. In Brazil, you have uh, what, what I could see in the stakeholders consultation that you have a great difference in national in different national landscapes, for example, today the design of Red Plus, the strategies of Red Plus are based on the Amazon reality. So all metrics, all strategies are more focused on conservation. However, you have other biomes with a great uh, threat of deforestation. For example, Atlantic forests today have uh, a long around 10% of the forests remaining. Cerrado, that is in the center of Brazil, has only 50% of these forests remaining. Mm -hmm. And a, a very uh, pressure from the monocultures, especially so, uh, soybean. So we have a demand for different modalities of red plus today in Brazil to have a, a, a broad uh, engagement of the country as a whole. So I think that uh, design uh, strategy for a country for Brazil is a, is a huge uh, challenge because the heterogeneities of people, landscapes, and laws that you have. But I think that considering these national and subnational specificities is crucial not only to guarantee the functioning of red place, but also to for red plus evolution as a concept. Thank you, Natalia, for that sweeping answer uh, and also raising these different biomes aside from just the Amazon, which is super important. Um, Bhaskar, we'll move back to you now. Uh, there have been innumerable reports on Red Plus. It has been highly studied. What did this report that IUPRO has just put out find that differs or reaffirms from the findings of other reports in the past? Uh, in other words, what are some of the key points of scientific consensus and difference on Red Plus, and what do you make of that? Uh, thanks, Gabrielle. Uh, so, um, 
I'll start with the, the um, points of consensus. I, mean, I'm, I think there's been, uh, Dirk has already mentioned this, there's been a huge emphasis on issues around monitoring, uh, reporting, and verification over, over uh, a long period of time. So the, the literature is full of uh, people agreeing on the importance of this, as well as recognizing the discrepancies in both capacity and quality of data and the need for better integration so that we can actually make sense of what's happening. So, I mean, I would say that one of the kind of big remaining biophysical uh, challenges, even though there's consensus around this, is that we need to improve the quality of our monitoring processes and make them more harmonized in some senses. I think the other point that Dirk made in his opening remark was that, you know, there is consensus on this point that just throwing money at the problem isn't going to solve global deforestation. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's a much more complex question than that. There are people who've been studying forest histories for, you know, decades now, and trying to understand that within political, social contexts is really important. Um, on Red Plus, again, there's consensus that non-carbon benefits are a vital part. So, I mean, the, the whole beauty of the program was the plus part of Red Plus, that, you know, unless we pay attention to the non-carbon benefits, we're not going to realize the full potential. And again, I would say that there's a growing scientific consensus around that as a kind of insight. And then finally, you know, one of the points that I emphasized, I think those who've been studying it from a governance and uh, uh, social, social perspective have converged upon the recognition of the importance of tenure rights and local participation as critical ingredients in success. I think there's study after study which re reaffirms that. So I think there's those would be points where I, where I would say there's kind of a growing consensus. Um, what did the report do different? So, I mean, uh, the report is obviously designed as a review of existing studies. We were not trying to do new research, but there were some areas of our emphasis that I think differs from where the emphasis has been in the past. And I, I just wanted to pick out maybe three. Um, one was work which I guess I was personally involved with, which is to review the role of finance increasingly as an actor in the processes of Red Plus governance. So there is increasing interest in large-scale financial uh, investments around Red Plus. And that's creating a much more complex financial landscape, which goes outside of the traditional donor-based landscape. You're getting increasing interest in private actors who are contributing large-scale finance into these mechanisms. And finance is taking on particular roles as a tool of governance. So we review that carefully and we talk about the kind of complexity that, that that's created in an already complex governance landscape. But finance obviously comes with the power of uh, imposing conditional requirements as part of the, the conditions attached with the disbursement of real money. So I think that that's creating a new set of actors and a new set of governance dynamics. And we spend quite a lot of time in one of our chapters talking about that. Um, I think the other thing is the increasing role of new technologies. I think the ability of new technologies to provide better and higher resolution data, but also for us to use uh, things like uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning to actually train our systems better to try and understand what those patterns might be. I think that's something which is a great potential for the future. Um, and I think the final thing I would point to is the report spends a lot of time talking about uh, linking Red Plus to other initiatives. So there, is a, there are parallel initiatives People are talking about nature-based solutions. People are talking about forest and landscape restoration. Now, these are, of course, for this GLF audience, very familiar because, you know, obviously we are talking about an, a number of parallel interventions that affect uh, the ways in which uh, we interact with the land resources that we are uh, dependent upon. Now, the report talks about the need for integration. It talks about the risks of confusion, especially for the stakeholders that Natalia has been talking about. You have this proliferation of initiatives under different labels. 
uh, and they have different ways of impacting the lives of local communities. And um, we spend a lot of time sort of talking about the importance of streamlining those interventions in order to avoid that design confusion. Thank you. Thank you so much for pulling out a few of the areas of consensus around monitoring, reporting, verification, that throwing money at the problem doesn't solve deforestation, uh, the non-carbon benefits, and the role of tenure and rights, which is indeed increasing on the international agenda, agenda which is great, and some of the differences around finance as an actor, uh, stressing the role of new technologies, and then linking Red Plus with other initiatives. Thank you for that great summary. Uh, and we're going to pull out now the financial aspect that you were just talking about and uh, put this to Dirk. So what do you see, Dirk, working and not working in the financial design of Red Plus? So channeling money to developing countries who are reducing their deforestation. What's working? What's not? Thank you. That's, that's another uh, good question. Um, and of course, while we say money alone will not solve the problem, the it will need money to, to solve the problem in, in the end. It, without resources, it will be extremely difficult. Um, what we could see over the years is a lot of commitment from, from uh, multilateral and bilateral donors and also from other actors, including private sector, to find innovative solutions on how to finance um, the deforestation part or to how to finance the um, turning the tide on deforestation, but also... Um, finding regulatory ways to be responsible for supply chains. How can we create deforestation-free supply chains has become a, a very important thing for, for many um, large private sector actors. We can also see that parties received a lot of help in, in building their institutions. There's free satellite imagery um, available thanks to donors that countries can just use as soon as they have the capacity. There's capacity building ongoing where countries can learn how to make use of all of these free resources. And what I think is also working well is the recognition that no one source of finance will be enough to fund the end of deforestation. And there is really a diversity of funding combined from direct um, donor funding to bilateral funding and multilateral funding, private sector getting engaged, private sector trying to um, create deforestation-free supply chains and address this directly in the countries. Also, the idea of, of uh, voluntary or compliance carbon markets is coming up, how this can maybe contribute to the finance needed. And also the Green Climate Fund had the large pilot program to provide results-based payments, which has been seen as very important in the developing world. Um, so all of this, I think, is, is signals in the right direction. What we are what we're not really seeing is a combination of different finance streams uh, as strongly. And what I mean with that is there is, forests play a big role in biodiversity. They play a big role in adaptation. and But it has been much more complicated for countries to combine these into the same, um, into the same area where funding is already received for Dread Plus from different actors. So recognizing that maybe um, what has been playing around for $5 a ton for per, per CO2 emission reduction, or now in some initiatives, $10 per ton may not be sufficient to counter the incentives from um, big commodities like palm oil or, or cattle ranching. And that maybe different, a combination of different streams are needed and finding innovative ways where how countries and also um, 
local actors can do this without being uh, receiving complaints that they are combining or sell, double selling what they're having in different initiatives. I think that's that's an important part. These combinations have to happen um, for countries, also in line with the national planning and national priorities, both in national climate plans, but also um, adaptation plans, biodiversity plans, etc. All of this can can link easily together, especially in forests. It's an area that is really um, prevalent to, to do this. The second part is that what we see in many, many countries is um, Red Plus doesn't implement itself. There's a lot of support, but the country also needs to put forward resources. There must be local stuff. There must be people that know the ground. There must be people that come, that keep the institutional memory and that build the capacity over time and then build up on not only the capacity to do measuring and monitoring, not only the capacity to do land use planning, but also to for accessing finance. It's a very specific capacity that countries need. And building this requires some sort of predictability of what to get out. If, if a forest administration goes to their head of state and say, look, we need a certain amount of money, so we get something out of red, and he get, there are so similar requests from a health education, a health uh, initiative, um, education initiative, food security initiative, it's very difficult to make the case when there's no predictability in the finance that comes out of this investment. I think that's also something um, where finance or plus could be doing better and needs to be doing better if we want to achieve zero deforestation by 2030 as countries pledged in Glasgow at COP26. Thank you, Dirk. Many good points there about combining different finance streams and, yes, building capacity, including that people who know how to access finance and um, maintain that over long periods of time. Uh, so, and I'll put this to you, Natalia, how can we make sure that communities in charge of protecting forests are receiving funding? Hi, uh, this is a very good question, but a very complex question. So uh, I'm going to, to take the opportunity to talk a little bit about the, the stakeholders' consultation carried out for this report, which may bring some answers. So uh, the stakeholders' consultation took place in 12 countries from Latin America and Asia and involved more than 200 stakeholders. So uh, interesting fact, uh, is that in different parts of the world, some issues and challenges related to Red Plus projects uh, emerged in a very similar way. And the problem with the resource distribution was, was one of them. So uh, I think that each country can develop different solutions based on its demands in some cases, for example, uh, tenure rights is a, a priority. In other cases, fighting corruption is more important now. And in other places, reduction of Red Plus implementation costs is crucial. So I will base my, my answer on the impression of the more than 40 Brazilian stakeholders who evaluated the IUF report and tried to, to answer this question. So uh, for some actors on the ground in Red Plus uh, projects in the Amazon, Brazilian Amazon, there is a large gap in the transparency in the distribution of resources. 
uh, in some cases, some cases, uh, local communities uh, don't know exactly how much some private companies that manage projects receive from the Red Plus market and how much of this amount is transferred onto the community. So it's important to emphasize that this occurs in some cases and you have uh, very good examples of Red Plus in the Brasilia Amazon. But unfortunately, uh, some information, communication, and transparency gaps happen in, in some projects. So uh, another aspect is related to the lack of participation of the civil society and representatives of the local communities involved in Red Plus projects in decision-making process. This is particularly important in Red Plus strategies definition because listen uh, to these people in this moment is crucial because they are the ones who determine whether a project will work or if the country will achieve the goals, its goals. So one of the main lessons brought out in the IUFU report states that local indigenous people and local communities when placed at the center of the Red Plus project, the project achieved core benefits beyond the goals, beyond the carbon sequestration, carbon stock, but can contribute to restoration of the biodiversity and to food security. I think that is a, a good way to improve the, the quality of life of these people involved in Red Plus project. So uh, I believe that in Brazil, in the Amazon, there is a, a particular reality. I believe that the guarantee of effective participation, and I say effective in the sense that these people will have the voice heard and the world will impact commitment. So effective participation of these people, the transpar transparency and autonomy of the goals and resources related to Red Plus is crucial. Is a start to improve uh, fair transfer of resources to the actors they are on the ground of the Red Plus project. So uh, I know that this strategy can differ according to reality of challenge and challenge of each country. So I think there is a autonomy, transparency, and participation, a fair participation is a good start to, to guarantee a fair distribution of resources to the communities on the ground. Thank you for stressing that. Autonomy, transparency, and fair participation. We'll keep that in mind. Uh, Dirk, we'll go back to you. Uh, working at the international policy level and through your work with UNFCCC, what is needed at that level to overcome some of the challenges that we've discussed in this conversation about Red Plus? Thanks for, for that question. Um, I mean, one is necessarily on the international level, we're not so much looking at, at the project level. And for us, really, the projects are more demonstration activities and what, what counts is what happens on the country as a whole. And uh, of course, if what, what needs to happen, but maybe this is more on a national level, is to properly embed the projects into a national strategy. 
And I think there is a, a level of recognition, especially since many people that have been dealing with rat in the early days are retired or moved on, to really recognize that the Warsaw Framework for Red Plus is a holistic framework that's that can really provide the framing for everything we're doing. And it's not a standalone thing. It has to be, it has to have support, supporting structures around from finance, from national strategies, et cetera. But the framework itself is very flexible and very strong and can allow for all of these things to happen. And what, what I mean, for example, is that there's in some areas, there's a focus on, for example, uncertainties, which would help to, um, if uncertainties are lowered to a certain level, to have more acceptance of deforestation credits in the carbon market. At the same time, the effect of that is that Red Plus is not one activity, it's not two activities, it's five activities. It also is about sustainable forest management, enhancing forest carbon stocks, and the conservation of forest carbon stocks. And in these areas, it's very difficult to achieve such uncertainties. And I think there must be a, a growing recognition that they also have very important contributions to make uh, to the reducing emissions or enhancing removals um, from land and forests. And that they also need their incentive levels that need to be recognized. There's also, of course, there's the national strategy country has to put together, as mentioned before. But there's also the safeguards part, which would be um, very difficult to negotiate something like this again. So I think it's it's very important to build on that and use this the Cancun safeguards, as they're called, as a baseline and build them up based on the national circumstances and where the country already stands and where they started. And I think the beauty of this is that over time, all of this, the improved data and the improved implementation can link to the GHG inventory of the country where greenhouse gas emissions are reported on the national level throughout all sectors, but then also to the Paris Agreement goals. And the same data can also be used for goals beyond that. So I think the, the recognition um, of the framework as, as a framework, which can be filled with life according to national circumstances and according to where finance is coming from and what are the actual threats of deforestation. I think that's something that could be well benefit from strengthening over the, the next few years and achieving then our 2030 targets and beyond. Thank you, Dirk. Uh, we have one question from the audience that if you don't mind, I'll put to you now before we go to our last question for Baskar. But earlier in the conversation, you mentioned deforestation-free supply chains. And we have a question coming in from Facebook asking, is there a way to increase the productivity of forests while also preserving them? And I'm wondering if you might like to say a few words on that question now. I know this well, is another there, complex. <laughs> there, there is a way. And I'm as a forester myself, I would always say that it comes back to forest governance with using adaptive management based on sound data. And and that's these are the pillars that are the same wherever I go, whether I go to a very uh, very dry forest in Southern Africa, whether I go to Siberia, where there are only a few trees per square kilometer, or whether I go to a very dense tropical rainforest in lowland Costa Rica, these principles are always the same. You must know what's going on in the, in the forest. You need to be able to, um, to adapt your management also depending on local circumstances and communities and how to get them on board. And then you need the governance to actually implement this. These three pillars stay the same. Thank you so much. Uh, so the governance, governance and management based on sound data. 
And now, Baskar, we'll move to you for the final wrap-up question here, um, which is, what are you and other researchers going to be examining most on Red Plus in the years to come? So, Gabriel, one of the uh, well, thank you for that, and uh, you know, one of the uh, very attractive parts of, of working in this area is that it's such a truly interdisciplinary field. I mean, there's just so many questions that people can ask. And of course, I come at this from my own particular perspective. I'm an economist with a sort of strong interest in understanding the political economy questions around land use and forest management. But I will try and represent the sort of broader community and you know uh, of, of, of scientists who are working in this field, both from the natural and the social sciences. And there's so many questions that people are, I mean, you know, wanting to work on. So I'll just pick out a few. But I'm, you know, I apologize if I miss out on particular areas because there are just so many things that people can can uh, can think about. So. I think we've talked a little bit about the need for improved monitoring and verification. And I think there's a real excitement around big data, remote sensing, uh, machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence, and the convergence of those in terms of trying to improve the quality of our um, reporting and monitoring around, around land use change and forest change. So I think there's a kind of really interesting convergence of those who've been working on uh, ground-based ecological monitoring, but combining that with remote sensed and data from from uh, from remote sources, and trying to make uh, a, a much stronger emphasis on on some of those technologies. So I think there's a real kind of opportunity here, and I know a lot of colleagues in both ecology and in computer sciences and in other fields are really working to converge there. And I think some of the largest corporations are also beginning to converge in this area. So people like Google and others are bringing their AI intelligence into this, into this area. So I think there's a real opportunity there within sort of the technological and ecological sciences. Um, I think that's coupled with a lot of work which is going on within the sort of biological and biodiversity sectors, you know, and especially with this convergence with nature-based solutions. So I think people are trying to understand how different interventions are leading to different types of impacts in terms of positive and negative impacts on biodiversity. So where are the convergences there? And again, ecological monitoring and, and reporting is, is really important, particularly large-scale quantified studies, uh, which, which can show uh, the impacts of Red Plus. Um, through, um, through, through experimental approaches, through trials, to really understand how these things are working on the ground. I'd couple that with people who are beginning to get really interested in using the same types of large-scale randomized trials uh, in terms of understanding the experimental outcomes uh, on the human side as well. I mean, it, at some senses where implementation has taken place, you actually do have the opportunity to see what has the impact been, but the importance of doing that over long periods of time because what you want is a permanence of human response as well. Just like you want a permanence of forest response, you want to make sure that the incentives work in a way that sustain themselves over time, that people don't go back into behaviors that might have previously contributed to deforestation or forest loss. So some of these studies have been very short term, and I think the interest now is to try and construct them so that they're longitudinal and, and demonstrate the behaviors sustaining over time. And then of course there are some remaining fascinating questions around the political economy and governance sides, the, the, the roles of finance, the roles of local incentives, the ways in which integration can take place across different sectors. So there's plenty to keep the political scientists, the sociologists and the uh, political economists busy for a long time. So I, I think there's a lot that we can all continue to do in this field. 
Thank you. Yes, I think there's plenty to keep everyone busy for a long time from the social side to the financial side to the scientific side to now the technological side. There are just so many aspects to Red Plus and all that it encompasses and tries to achieve. And I know this conversation has been very wide reaching and we've touched on a lot of topics uh, very quickly, but uh, thank you all for giving us insight into your own unique perspective and experience with Red Plus. It was informative to me. I hope it was informative to our listeners as well. And again, to everyone listening and to everyone who will listen back, I really encourage you to check out the IUFRA report. Um, it's very well put together, very easily digestible and makes some really good points on Red Plus. Uh, so to all of our speakers, thank you so much for joining us. This was such a pleasure and such a great dialogue. And to everyone listening, thank you for your time. And uh, we will see you next time on GLF Live. Thank you everyone so much. If you'd like to learn more about sustainable finance, join us in two weeks time on the 7th of March at GLF Luxembourg Finance for Nature, the GLF's latest investment case symposium where you'll meet thousands of financiers, practitioners, investors, and changemakers, and hear about some of their latest innovations and projects. Visit our website via the link in the description to sign up and learn all about sustainable finance, land restoration, climate change, and much more. That's it for today's episode. We'll see you on the next one.